I'd invite you to turn to the epistle to Philemon. It's a one-chapter epistle near the back, near the end of the New Testament. So I'll give you a little time and help you find it. If you can find First and Second Timothy, if you can find Colossians, it's just a little to the right of that. Right before you get to the book of Hebrews, you'll find the epistle to Philemon. I want you to find that and just hold your Bible open on your lap. Don't you dare close it. Okay? Just hang in there. A very wise man one day said, Things that do not change remain the same. Now that's deep. A truism, things that do not change remain the same. Would, would you like that? I mean, would you like for everything just to stay the same? Would you like to, I mean, gather up the things that are around you and just kind of freeze them so everything will always be exactly like it is now? Would you like to get some kind of nail, you know, that, that, that you could just nail everything down so that everything will remain the same? Well, you see your kids growing up. You see your waistline expanding. Your hair turning gray. Um, the years mounting up. Would you like to just somewhere just kind of put a halt to it and hold everything just like it is now? Without change, there can be no growth. Um, and growth really is the essence of what it means to be vitally alive. And so if you're vitally alive, you're growing. And if you're growing, you're changing. Growth involves pain. There's always pain that attends growth. Pains of change. There's always pain to change. Growth is a process, and so it takes time. So if you're alive, you're growing, and if you're growing, you're changing. You're all involved. We're all involved in the process of change. How are you when it comes to change? Do you like it? Change comes and hits us at every level. Do you like change? How are you when it comes to change? If you've... Uh, um, you know, I guess it depends on where you are. If, you, uh, if I ask you, do you like change? And it means to dig up your roots and move away from your friends and your security, you might say, no, I don't like change. But if it means that you're going to get a $1,000 a month raise and a, and a promotion in the company or the business that you're engaged in, you probably would say, yes, I, I like change. Change can be good. Change can be bad. But I'm told by the people who study at attitudes of people, that most folks are reluctant to change. Ten percent of the people you encounter, you ask them, how do you like change? And they'll say, man, I like it. Let's do it. I'm against, I don't like getting in a rut. I don't like things to be the same. Whatever it is, I'm ready for a change. The, uh, another ten percent would say, I'm against change of any kind. I just don't like change. Like the guy in the church, somebody was talking to him one day and he said, I've been a member of this church for 50 years and during that time I've seen a lot of changes and I've been again every one of them. 
I mean, I just don't like change. And, and these who study attitudes will say that the other 80% of, of the people uh, that they interviewed were slow and reluctant to change. That, that means that 9 out of 10 people that are listening to me this morning in this congregation, 9 out of 10 are at best slow and reluctant to change. But I want to tell you right up front this morning that, that Christianity is change. The words are almost synonymous. I want to tell you right up front this morning that if you have signed on to be a Christian, you have signed on to change. And that change is not just the change that takes place in the initial encounter of your salvation. Not just that, but a daily and continuous change. If you're a Christian, you're involved in daily and continuous change. And the Bible is full of illustrations of the becoming life Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new species of being. All things have become new. Old things have passed away. And behold, new things are becoming. And now we all, as with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being changed into the same image from glory unto glory. So that to be a Christian means that you're engaged, involved in the process of becoming something new. God is out to change you. And He doesn't get discouraged. He has this perfect model He wants you to become. It's the model of His own Son. And everything in, his, in your life, He seeks to work to accomplish change, to make you like Him. And we quote Romans 8, 28, For all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to His purpose. But I want you to notice the next verse. It ties into that. For it says, For those He knew He predestinated to be conformed to the image of His Son. And when you put them together, it says this, that everything that happens in your life, God ultimately brings together in the alchemy of His grace to accomplish the change of your life into the likeness of Jesus Christ. I mean, He's out to change you. Now, you don't have to be afraid of, of the change He's going to make in your life. As a matter of fact, God is gracious and, and God is constant. Uh, you don't have to fear uh, the great change agent who is God Himself. You need to fear rather that you will not change. Washington Irving, the author of Ichabod Crane, makes a, a valid point after having traveled a lot on a stagecoach. He wrote one time, he said, You know, I found a certain amount of relief in change even if it means going from bad to worse. Or he said, after having been jostled on a stagecoach a number of times, I find a great deal of comfort in just changing positions to be bruised in a new place. Sometimes just, a, you know, even if it means going from bad to worse, change is good. There's a certain amount of comfort in that. And I want you to know that God is out to change you. And I don't know of any other scripture in the Bible, any other book in the Bible that describes the change that God makes any more than this little epistle to Philemon. Now the, the theme of this epistle is reconciliation and the meaning of reconciliation is to, is to make different or to change fully. It was written by the Apostle Paul to Philemon. Now Philemon lived in Colossae. He was led to Christ by the Apostle Paul and he was... Um, 
considerably wealthy. We know he was at least of the upper middle class because he had slaves. And one of those slaves that he kept was a, was a boy, was a young man named Onesimus, and he was a rebel. I mean, he just was a troublemaker. And he got tired of service in the household of Philemon, and so one day he escaped. He ran away. And, and, and before he left, he went in and he took some things that belonged to Philemon. He was a thief as well as an escapee. And he fled to Rome to see if he could find the Apostle Paul. I don't know why he went looking for Paul. Perhaps it was, it was because he had heard Philemon talk so much about him. But how are you going to find a man, one man in this humongous city of hundreds of thousands of people named Paul? Well, you, would you elbow your way through the crowd and go into the marketplace and find somebody preaching and say, are you the apostle Paul? Probably you'd go to jail because there's where Paul spent most of his time. And so he went to Rome and he went straight to jail and he found the Apostle Paul. And he went to him and he said, I need some help. And the Apostle Paul gave him the best help a man can give anybody. He introduced him to Jesus Christ. And when he did that, he did a strange thing. He did a unique thing. He pinned this note, which is this epistle, on his shirt and sent him straight back to Colossae, to Philemon. What a strong conviction the Apostle Paul had in what is right. He must have loathed slavery. He must have despised it. And he must have longed for every man to be free. And yet he knew that slavery was the law of the land. And he wasn't going to um, harbinger this criminal. He wasn't, going to, he wasn't going to break or violate the law. So he sends him right back to Philemon, even though it meant that he could be legally put to death. And what a, what a strong confidence the apostle had in Philemon that he would take him back, that, that he would extend the same mercy to, to Onesimus that God had extended to him and what confidence he had in this new convert that he would even go back where he sent him. Have you ever wondered why certain books are in the Bible or certain passages? I mean, you see in graphic detail, in concise detail, everything that goes on. Philemon is an example. How'd that get in the Bible? Well, the Scripture says that these kinds of things are here for our instruction and our edification. In the words of Stuart Hamlin, it is no secret what God can do, what He's done for others, He'll do for you. And it's here because God wants us to see the change that He is able to make in human life. And so I just want us to look this morning at the difference, at the change God made in Onesimus, in Philemon, and in the Apostle Paul himself. Now, if you have your Bibles open with me, we're going to see, first of all, the change he made in, in the uh, attitude of the Apostle Paul. Now, you've got to write, read along with me, beginning at verse 7. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love. He's saying this to Philemon. Paul's writing, Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do that which is proper, yet for love's sake I appeal to you. Now Paul said, I have the right to demand or command you to receive this boy back but I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to appeal to you as a brother. Since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, 
and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Look at verse 14. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything that your goodness should not be put should not be as it were by compulsion, but of your own free will. I don't want to force you to do anything, he said. For perhaps he was for this reason parted from you for a little while, that you should have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. Now, how do you, what do you think of the apostle when you read that? I mean, what is your opinion of him? Well, you'll say, well, he's a generous, uh, conciliatory, uh, loving, gracious man who doesn't want to run roughshod over anybody or demand his way. That's the way it looks, doesn't it? Well, that's the way he was, really. But if you had known him 30 years before, you would have found an entirely different man. Now listen to me. 30 years before this, this apostle was the world's greatest bigot. I mean, he was bigoted through and through. He was naturally, religiously, and nationally a bigot. And he would say something, he would say things like this. Uh, the things I'm saying are right because they're the things I'm saying. My view is correct because it's my view. My way is right because it's my way. Now you do it my way. He was that kind of man. I mean, 30 years before, he was the first century's grand wizard of the KKK. He was a hostile, volatile murderer. But in time and through change... This Saul the tyrant became Paul the servant. Now, it didn't happen overnight, contrary to what we sometimes think. It didn't just happen on the road to Damascus that all of a sudden something happened inside of him and he was after that just the generous, gracious, loving man we read in this text. No, because if you read his life story, you'll find he and Barnabas got in this hot debate over, over Mark and Paul just was dogmatic and unyielding and, 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 and non-conciliatory in every way. But in the time that happened, in the pain that happened, God wrought a change in the government of His being. And His whole attitude changed. Now He is this loving, generous, conciliatory man. Anybody need that kind of change? I mean... Is there anybody here who needs that kind of work done in them? Are you one of those people that has to have your way, you know, or you're offended and hurt? Are you uh, unconciliatory and critical and negative? Are you one of those people that is opinionated and your opinion has to be expressed on everything? Are you one of those people that just won't budge not in your home, not in your business, not in your church? Are you one of those people that has an opinion about everything and that opinion has to always be heard and always is right? Then you need this same kind of change. What was wrought was wrought inside of this man and the government of his being in his attitude, in his disposition, he became like Jesus. Now, there's a car parked out there in my parking spot all, all day long one day. Just an old clunker. 
and I, if it had been a brand new and I thought somebody parked it there and was going to give me the keys to it, but it was just an old fishing car. And, and, I, and I wonder what that thing is doing in my parking place. I, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced now that probably God had it there for a message for me. It had a bumper sticker. I saw it every time I came in parked behind it. It said, the lab called, your mind is ready. Your brain is ready. Well, what he's talking about is, you know, is this thing on? Uh, what, what he was saying is that, that, that you know, all these transplants, that, that um, your, your brain's ready for the transplant. Um, Jesus called, your disposition is ready. And all he wants to do is to transplant his attitude, his disposition into your life. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That although he was equal with God, he did not see that as something to grasp. But he emptied himself and became a servant. That's the change that God makes. Change of attitudes. Now I want you to see the change in the ability, in the abilities of Onesimus. Now if you've got your Bible, look at verse 10. Verse 10 begins, it says, I appeal to you for my child whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, Onesimus. He calls him his child, my kid, Onesimus, that I've led to Christ in my imprisonment. Who formerly, what's this, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. Look at verses 15, 16. For perhaps he was for this reason parted from you for a while, that you should have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Uh, look here what's, what, what, what he's saying about Onesimus. Now, does your Bible have in the margin that, that Onesimus' name means useful? It does, doesn't it? Mine does. If your do, yours doesn't, take my word for it and put it in there. It's a uh, little footnote. It says that the, the meaning of Onesimus' name was useful. He, was, he had a name. His name was useful, but he wasn't. I mean, he was useless. He, he, was, he was absolutely worthless to Philemon and everybody around him. He was a troublemaker. He, it was counterproductive even to have him. I mean, he was of no value at all. And that must have been the way the whole thing developed, must have been that way all along. I can just see Philemon one morning getting ready. He's putting on his robe and he's putting on his sandals and he pulls that strap of his sandals over there and it snaps off. I mean, it just comes loose. And he says, uh, useful, come here. You know, calls for Onesimus. No answer. And he says, useful, get in here. And, and, and useful doesn't respond. And, and Philemon just kind of snorts, useful indeed. He's useless. And he goes outside and finds that this guy has split. He's taken off. Now, he's probably better off without him, but it just kind of rubs against the grain that here's this slave who's taken off on him. Then he finds that he's stolen some stuff before he leaves. 
And after having spent a few days and probably getting over it, all of a sudden, there he stands one day, there he appears, old useless. He has this, this letter pinned to his shirt. Now, it says a lot for Philemon that he doesn't get him around the neck before he gets to the letter, you know, that's pinned to his shirt. That's probably where he wanted to go first, you know, for the jugular vein. But he, but he reaches over there and he takes off this, this letter, this, this note, and he reads this remarkable word. Phil? Well, Philemon, um, I, 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 want you to, I want you to take him back for, for he who has been absolutely useless is now useful because, now watch this, because he has now indwelling in him the strength and the, and the heart and the values of Jesus Christ himself. He's a brother in the Lord. Now you know what it means to be lost? To be lost means that your usefulness to God is lost. Like this watch that I'm wearing. Contrary to what some of you think, I do watch the time. Now, my, my watch is, is, is for me, is, is to mark the time. It, it tells me what time it is. And, and by my watch, it's 16 minutes until 12. But if something happened to the inner mechanism of this watch, and it could no longer mark the time or indicate the time, it would be useless to me. I mean, it's, pretty, it's a, kind of a nice ornament, but, I mean, that's not what I'm wearing it on my wrist just for its looks. It's there to mark the time. Now watch this. If something happens to the inner mechanism of a human being created in the image of God and something destroys that image that God has created, in which God has created him, then as far as God is concerned, that man is useless. That's what happened when we sinned. The doctrine of total depravity indicates that when a man sins, every aspect of his personality and being is affected by sin's power. And man's no longer useful to God until Jesus comes and makes him new. Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it was hardly worth his time, hardly worth his while to spend much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bid, he cried, good folks, he cried. Who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar? A dollar? Then two, only two? Two dollars, who'll make it three? Three dollars going once, Three dollars going twice, going for three. But no, from the back of the room, from the room far back, an old gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. And dusting the dust from the old violin and tightening the loose strings, he played a melody pure and sweet like the caroling angel sings. Then the music ceased and the old auctioneer with a voice that's quiet and low said, How much am I bid for the old violin? And he held it up with the bow. One thousand dollars? 
Who will make it two? Two thousand. And who will make it three? Three thousand once. Three thousand twice. And going and gone, said he. And the people cheered, but some of them cried. We do not quite understand what changed its worth. Then swift came the reply. "'Twas the touch of the Master's hand. Many a man whose life's out of tune, all battered and scarred by sin, is auctioned too cheap to the foolish crowd, much like the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, then he travels on. He's going once, he's going twice, he's going and almost gone. Then comes the master and the foolish crowd never quite understands the worth of the soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. I'm talking to people this morning who would absolutely be worthless were it not for the touch of His hand upon your life. And I'm one of them. Oh, the difference He makes. Would you look right quick, please, at the difference He makes in the attributes of Philemon. Look here. Verse 4. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers. Look at this. Because I hear of your love and of your faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you. For Christ's sake, look, for I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Verse 20, yes, brothers, let me, let's, yet, yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Now, what's Philemon like? Well, he has love for the saints he has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and he has joy in his new relationship with God. Fruits of the Spirit. And not only that, he said, I just rejoice in you because my spirit is refreshed by you and everybody that comes to your house has found the refreshment that you bring to their life. That's the way Philemon was like. You talk about a good guy. He'll go down in history as the man in whose presence there was refreshment. What do you dispense to the people who come in contact with you? What do you dispense to the folks that are in your house? What do you dispense to the people that see you driving down the street? What do you dispense to the people in your business? I mean, can it be said of you that in your presence there is refreshment and love? Now, that's the way Philemon was. 
but He wasn't always like that. Let me tell you something. I say it without fear of contradiction that only God can make a man sweet like that. Only God can make His life refreshing. I heard this story. I don't know if it's true or not. I guess it's true whether it happened or not. This lady looked out the door one day and she saw a, a mule had died. I guess it got, gotten, gotten, got, had gotten away from somebody, had come up and had died right in her front yard. And so she called the city sanitation department, said, uh, I've got this, yes, a dead mule in my front yard. Could you come send the crew over the truck, get this mule out of my yard? So they did. And while they were you know, getting the mule ready to load it on the back of the, the, dump, the garbage uh, truck, she thought, I've got something I want to do with that. And she went outside and she said, this is a kind of a strange request, but I wish you'd do this favor for me, gentlemen. They said, we'll do our best. She said, would you take that mule upstairs and put it in the bathtub in our upstairs bathroom? And so they said, well, I guess so. And they hauled that mule struggle with it, dead mule, up the stairs, put it in the bathtub of the upstairs bathroom. On the way out, they could stand it no longer. And they said, Lady, we, we'd hate to be nosy, but why did you want us to put that mule in the upstairs bathtub? And she said, Well, my husband comes home every afternoon and, and, it, and the first thing he does when he comes in the door is just, just kind of say nonchalantly, what's new? And, and she said, he just drives me crazy. Uh, when he comes in, he's kind of nonchalant. He kind of says, what's new? And she says, this afternoon, uh, I've really got something to tell him. Um, what's new in your life? You know, listen carefully. Let let me tell you something. It is as offensive, it is just as offensive never to change your attitude as it is never to change your clothes. And if it's offensive to be around a man who never changes his clothes, it's just as offensive to be around a man who has never had an attitude change or ability change or attribute change. I want you to allow, listen carefully, I want you to allow the great God of change to do a work at the government of your being today where you need it the most. So that when he says or she says, what's new? You'll have something to tell them and to show them. Let's do it right now in prayer. 
Father, I thank you that we don't have to remain the same. We don't always like the way we are. God, we want to be brand new. You, we know that what you've come to bring will not be contained in old wineskins. That you seek to make us new people. And I pray for the person here this morning who has an attitude and a problem that needs changing. And for the man or woman or child this morning who has an ability problem, who is useless because their life has been totally ruined by sin, who needs an ability problem for Jesus, the great master of the violin, to change. I pray for those of us who have attribute problem, no love, no joy, no faith, no peace, no comfort, neither for ourselves or for anyone else. Need a change, God, that you'll accomplish that in these moments. Because I pray in Jesus' name for his sake. Now, this is such an important moment, really. Perhaps more important than the moment that the message is being spoken is the moment when the decision is to be made. Is there one this morning here who at the center of his being is out of touch and out of fellowship with God and your attitude is just lousy and your attribute is just violated would you let Jesus make a change in you? That's called rededication of life, recommitment of life. Is there one this morning who to God is absolutely of no value? I mean, you're serving the devil. I mean, he says you're his. Jesus said, he's your father and his deeds you do. Would you let God come into your life in the person of Christ, the Holy Spirit, and change you? Make you a brand new, the scripture calls species of being, a brand new person. It's called commitment of your life and faith to Jesus Christ. Repenting of sin and trusting Him for your salvation. Or maybe you just need to come and join the church, which is no small thing. Because Christ died for the church. We're going to ask you to do it while we stand and sing and come.